0: you are listening to the 3cr podcast of encyclopedia encyclopedia is broadcast live every sunday from 2 p.m for more information head to 3cr.org.au this is
1: encyclopedia on 3CR Community Radio, 855am, 3 CR Digital, 3cr.org.au. Thank you to Freedom of Species, who will be back next week, same time, same place, I guess. Do you ever feel like I've been doing a lot of the podcast this week, so please go and subscribe uh, to the podcast, 3cr.org.au, but listening to the start say the same thing every week it starts starts playing around and around in my head and i'm saying this to <laughs> ash blackwell who's sitting beside me um but there's a lot more podcasts so i, I think i've got about eight from mid-year uh, including um uh there was one i was doing just earlier about uh mardi gras from the nimbert Hemb- embassy who we'll um, hear from again in a few months time and Um, Actually, there's a Hemp Health and Innovation Expo coming up in December, so we'll we'll get on that. But anyway, uh, program ahead. Um, We've been going through the archives and found some things to hear.
2: Well, it's coming into the season where a lot of young people are heading off to festivals this very weekend. Uh, It's the start of the festival season. And uh, we will be broadcasting a discussion on harm reduction from the Students for Sensible Drug Policy Conference last year.
1: Um, But before that, a couple of news stories.
2: Yeah, well, there's one um, from the International Drug Policy Consortium. Uh, They created like a shadow report uh, based on UN data analysing the last 10 years of um, our current approach on drug policy from an international point of view. And it basically lays out some of the failures of that policy with um, deaths from drug use going up, there was a a 145% increase in drug-related deaths over the past decade um, culminating in around 450,000 deaths per year in 2015 Um, and it also found that despite all of the efforts to control drug production there was a 130% increase in the cultivation of opium poppies 34% rise in coca production and no sign of reduction in cannabis cultivation. So on the its own terms um, it's clear that this policy approach has failed
1: and uh, in places uh, in the world that have changed their mind and taken a different tact Canada uh, where cannabis was legalised on October the 18th uh, and uh, they quickly ran out supply issues and not enough stores open it's a highly regulated market as is um, sort of expected to happen I guess uh, and uh, they they weren't able to uh, meet supply. People were lining up for hours. It's made international news because everybody's watching as these things play out, and this is a fairly common story. I think we saw the same thing happen in Colorado, uh, similar things in Uruguay. In fact, I think there might still be supply problems in Uruguay, uh, where the whole country has legalised. so and, and even in the medical cannabis in, here in Victoria, we see supply uh, issues in terms of um, people being priced out or not being able to uh, meet the regulatory burden to access it.
2: Um, well, it's, a, it's not just cannabis, the drug that's popular. Cannabis culture is popular. There's a lot of people that are interested in all of the things that go along with it, like hip-hop's not just music, it's graffiti, it's, you know, it's beatboxing, it's breakdancing, it's a whole... It's a whole culture there. So people want to get in, you know, where they get excited about coming out from the shadows. So of course there's going to be, you know, a lot of people on the first day. I guess we'll see there's concerns in Canada that they've restricted so much of the existing market without establishing a good framework are they going to be able to maintain that supply and keep up with demand into the future? Uh,
1: You just reminded me as well on uh, Thursday, it was International Drug Users Day uh, where there were some events across the world and um, there was... uh, You've got the poster from Input.
2: Well, no, this is a Harm Reduction Victoria post. So we are here in, in Melbourne, Victoria, well, in Collingwood in Victoria, and this is our state's, uh, I guess, drug user organization. So they're the, the spokespeople for people who use drugs in this state. Um, and I might just read some of the post. What is International Drug Users Day? November 1st is known as International Drug Users Day, and it is a day to remember all the people around the world who have died or been imprisoned because they use drugs and about reminding everyone about the good stuff drug users do as well so let's celebrate our victories small or large we got an injecting center this year in melbourne and more people who need it are using it thousands of people in australia use drugs more safely because of drug user peer education it's important to remember today that people who use drugs have done amazing things to make our community community healthier and safer people who use drugs are living longer and staying healthier as Vivaids and Harm Reduction Victoria, we have been around for over 30 years providing sterile needles and educating on avoiding HIV and hep C uh, to other users. Now we have a cure for hep C as well. We have contributed to making our rate of HIV among injecting injectors in Australia one of the lowest in the world, less than 1% of injecting drug users. And um, I'll, I'll leave it there, but I just think that's a nice little... Shout out yep. to uh, the people on the front lines. That's about all we have time
1: for news this week. We are going to get stuck into the, um, the panel again.
2: And so this was from 2017, um, mm-hmm. panelists? The panelists are Dr. Attila Danko, who was the head of the New Nicotine Alliance at the time, Dr. Monica Barrett, who's a researcher at the um, National Drug and Alcohol Research Center. And Annie Madden, who was, I think, the CEO of AVOL still at the time, the Australian Illicit and Injecting Drug Users League, and also Steph Janidis, the program coordinator of the Dancewise program down here at Harm Reduction Victoria. And
1: first up, we'll hear from Dr. Attila Denko. This is perfect.
2: Who's Danco, who's uh, the head of the new Nicotine Alliance, a vaping advocacy organisation um, that's looking for sensible laws and including tobacco in the concept of harm reduction. Uh, we've got Steph, who we heard from yesterday, coordinator at Harm Reduction Victoria's Dancewise program. Um, Dr. Monica Barrett, uh, researcher at the National Drug and Alcohol Research Centre in the National Drug Policy modelling program that Did I, I didn't about. Okay, the so right. yeah. policy modelling program, um, and entering, uh like darknet markets and, and what they look like, and and how that then interacts with harm reduction. And you've just been overseas at conferencing yeah, like so crazy. crazy yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so and we've got um, Annie Madden, who's um, like kind of one of the old school warriors that helped get us. I'll own it. You are totally. Um, uh, who helped establish, Australia used to be known around the world as leaders in harm reduction. We helped set up some of the first initiatives to deal with blood-borne viruses and roll out a national needle syringe program. So we're going to hear a little bit about that. Um, and I'll let Attila start because we have to crack on and make sure that we finish in time for the live broadcast. So take it away, Attila.
3: Okay, thanks everyone for having me along. I don't know if that's working, doesn't matter too much. So, um, yeah, I'm Dr. Attila I'm a medical doctor. and um, oh, there we go. Great. And um, I was a smoker from the age of 11. And I gave up for various times, but I'd always be tempted back into smoking. I just loved it so much. You know, you go out for a drink and you see someone smoking, you think, yeah, I really want one of those. Um, Anyway, um, five years ago I managed to give up by substituting my smoking for vaping with you know, incredible benefits to my health. I feel I like could run upstairs and just felt so much better in myself as well as being you know, much, much cheaper. But then um, we worked out, we, obviously we knew that nicotine vaping in Australia is illegal. So essentially I was a criminal for giving up smoking. Uh, which didn't seem to be, you know, the right thing. Um, So, in case people don't know, I'm sure most of you do, but I'll just go through this. What is baking? So, the problem with smoking isn't the nicotine, it's the smoke. So, in developing countries around the world, a lot of people have fires inside small places, biomass fuels, for cooking. And there's lots of smoke generated with this, and uh, it was quite interesting to find out that about the numbers of people who die from smoking each year, if you take about two thirds of that number, that's about the same amount of people who die from indoor air pollution in developing countries. So it's got nothing to do with the nicotine, it's all about the smoke. Whether you inhale a smoke from a fire or inhale a smoke from a cigarette, it's still the same, it's, there's no difference. So, um, people, um, I might go back to that. So, the idea of aping is that you simply substitute something which is giving you tons of harm with something which is, uh, the Royal College of Physicians estimate is 95% safer. And people argue about this figure, saying that, well, you know, how's it derived? It's derived from some panel of people who just sat around and talked. But 95% is actually a conservative figure, because if you measure the total amount of toxins in a vape, it's about 1% of what you get in cigarettes. So the figure's probably closer to 99% safer, rather than 95%. Um, But uh, the other thing that people ask about is that, well, is it effective for most people who vape? They still smoke as well. But... um, what happens is this is usually a transition process, because unlike the idea of just giving up, just stopping it, just, just say no, the idea is that you can just take up vaping as well as smoking, and then just gradually transition without any pressure, without any stress, just as you want to. And we see data now coming out from the UK that shows that people who have been using um, vaping and e-cigarettes are actually a lot more likely to quit smoking altogether by substituting to a a harm reduction alternative. And we see this in the whole country epidemiology data too. Australia keeps on saying that, oh, we're the best country for tobacco control, you know, we beat all the rest. Um, But for a long time, you know, the smoking rates in the UK were significantly above Australia. Australia had a lot more Punishment type policies such as higher taxes and plain packaging. They pioneered a lot of these sort of um, repressive type measures on smoking to try and get rid of it. But in the last three years, as you can see, there's been a, quite a difference in how the trajectory of smoking rates has gone. But essentially, Australia is pretty much plateauing out in its um, reducing the smoking rate despite the highest taxes in the world. While in the UK, where the whole country has gotten behind harm reduction in tobacco. So the government supports it, the public health organisations support it, the medical organisations support it, um, and we can start to see the results of harm reduction in practice, where now the UK is at the same level as Australia and is um, looking likely to go below Australia with its antiquated prohibitionist type policies. So this is the main issue in the tobacco control establishment. And it's about, it was brought up by other people, too, about um, pleasure. That we enjoyed smoking and we enjoy vaping. And the way to change from being a smoker to a vaper is to enjoy vaping just as much, if not more so, than smoking. Um, and the, our opponents will keep saying, oh, it needs to be medicalised. We need the protection of the TGA to... Um, you know, make sure that these don't just proliferate and expand the smoking epidemic. Um, But that that idea of making a medical bland product uh, that's perfectly safe but no one wants to use, it's uh, it's not how it works. And um, so typically the um, tobacco control has morphed into, instead of about stopping people smoking, it's about stopping people being dependent on nicotine. That this has become the enemy now, uh, instead of people's lives, instead of people's health. And uh, this explains a lot of the opposition to the, um, this is uh, Simon Chapman who's our arch enemy in this fight. <laughs> I'm trying to engage him, i tried to really okay. say, let's just understand each other's talk. But he's just trenchant, and his opposition is, yeah. So, what I would like, uh, everyone here, I've really appreciated, interacting with people in the larger harm reduction space, and um, I've gained a lot of lessons, and I've seen heaps and heaps of parallels. You know, it, it just uh, it's, you know, we're dealing with the same issues of mentalisation and pleasure, of you know, freedom of choice, of um, you know, whether or not we're allowed to control our consciousness or not. Um, Because, I mean, for me, nicotine is a cognitive drug. It it works for me in terms of being able to concentrate, in terms of being able to feel good. Um, All those prohibition type things just would never have worked on me because I just decided that, well, I felt better when I I was bathing my brain in regular doses of nicotine and, and, you know, sitting back and and chucking a few clouds. And so those sorts of approaches of just, you're gonna die, you know, just stop it, you evil, you know, um, They just weren't going to work on me, and there are millions and millions of smokers around the world who that's not going to work on, but a harm reduction approach is going to work, a compassionate approach, and I would like to see my job become obsolete, just like I'd like to see cigarettes become obsolete, and I'd really like it if the broader harm reduction community took on this as well as everything else, because it, it does belong within Reduction, it's
2: the same thing. Thanks very much. Oh, yeah, can you need to hand you guys a microphone? Yep, just go along. Yeah, I don't have a presentation
0: or anything. Yep. Um, Thank you for that. Um, Hi, my name I coordinate the arts Program, uh, which is a program of calm reduction in Victoria. Um, the name of the organisation suggests the line of work, but exactly what that means um, varies depending on the setting. Uh, to best of my knowledge, there's a fixed definition of what harm reduction is. Uh, it's a collection of practices and ideas, and uh, at the core, um, you're prioritising pragmatism, you're prioritising health, you're accepting people as they are, and you're being genuine in exchange. So, um, keeping those basic ideas, values uh, in your mind um, applied to the Dancewise program, um, we are doing outreach at music events and festivals, so uh, there's quite a few familiar faces in the room. And um, I'm just wondering, has ever is everyone familiar with the Dancewise program? Can I get a show hand? Is
2: everyone
0: everyone that's familiar? Have you? Seeing DanceWise in action and event. Many of you are seeing like at universities I've for right side,
4: Queensland. Oh yeah. Michael Brennan.
0: Okay, so I'm not familiar with the program model there, but I would assume Simulancy. it's similar. similar. Yeah. I'd like to work for you down here too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> recruiting. Recruiting on stage, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the way that we operate changes from events to events or festivals nightclub setting, and that's because there's different needs in different settings. Um, we are just hearing a great talk about an example of this is harm reduction. Um, in some settings, earplugs is harm reduction. Uh, in some settings, pill testing is harm reduction. In some settings, uh, sterile injecting equipment is harm reduction. Uh, so I'm just gonna give a few examples of the kinds of initiatives that um, we've delivered. Um, so if we were at a nightclub event, say a closed venue, Uh, we'd be quite conscious to have things like air plugs there because of damage to people's ears in that environment, but also spray bottles to help people cool down because remembering to take uh, breaks and get fresh air is is a harm reduction practice. Uh, If you're at an outdoor festival, uh, we might be walking around with sunscreen because um, being sun smart is a harm reduction practice. If you and this is like within within an environment where people um, may or may not be using um, drugs to um, carry their general just recreation and fun, um, but it doesn't mean that it has to be something that d- distracts from that fun. Um, we also provide support for people if they need to, if they need to be um, looked after. Uh, and what they, they, I'm looking for words to describe it, but I might actually flesh that out a bit. Uh, the kinds of drugs that used in um, the dance scene vary as well as much as the genre. So. What we do when we support people could be holding someone's hair back if they've had too much to drink and they're now nauseous. Yeah, Yeah. Um, right through to people that uh, may be having a difficult psychedelic um, experience and they could be essentially Dissolving their their ego and being reborn right in front of us, and essentially they just need um, space, insulation, acceptance. Uh, so what harm reduction is is it's flexible, um, and it it's uh, grassroots, and it always has to have involvement of the people who are using the drugs because they know all the nooks and the crannies of what is needed. So I might just leave it there and just see what kind of questions people have.
1: griff street logic with surrender on in psychedelia on 3cr 855am 3cr.au uh, and 3CR Digital, and Griff is playing at Dragon Dreaming just outside of New South Wales, or just outside of the ACT in New South Wales uh, this weekend, and I'm sure we'll hear all about
2: how things go in
1: New South Wales.
2: Indeed. And coming up next, we have the harm reduction panel from the 2017 Students for Sensible Drug Policy Australia conference. Which was hosted uh, in on the 12th and 13th of August last year at the University of Melbourne. We have just been hearing from Attila Denko and Steph Genetis, and coming up next is Dr. Monica Barrett and Annie Maddock. Thanks. Uh, so, um,
5: so my name is Dr. Monica Barrett uh, from the Drug Policy Modeling Program. Research centre and and Endark is based in Sydney, but I'm actually based in Victoria. Um, I've been working with them for three years in that sort of remote capacity, and so my role is as a research fellow. So I've actually been working in the research area around alcohol and drugs and harm reduction since I started in this field now, crazily 15 years ago, and I was very young. Um, and I guess. Um, my uh, my in harm reduction was from the very start, and it was a little bit like Attila was saying, you know, probably she didn't work on me. I guess I'll just leave it at that, but you know, the idea that, that you can tell people, this is bad for you and it won't, it, it, you should stay away from it um, is sort of a red flag to a wall, really. Um, it, it tells people, actually, maybe we should have a look at this thing because the government doesn't want us to use it. Uh, so so in that sort of environment and uh, um, doing a degree in psychology and also having available to me an addiction studies unit, I started to, um, to look into this thing called drugs and I found it so fascinating to study because here we had this huge contradiction between what was being told at the upper levels, what was happening at the ground, and these, these problems uh, around harms that were occurring, in, in my mind, totally unnecessarily, as a result of politics. So I think at that point, when I was in my early 20s, I realised that this was such a fascinating space that I wanted to stay with it. Uh, And so the opportunities arose for me to do that, um, to do a PhD uh, and then to work at these sorts of agencies. So I I guess the the area I've been really interested in in the last few years, um, for a long time now, is this idea of um, uh, drugs not being what they say they are, so coming along, um, someone purchasing something, finding it's actually something completely different to that. Or not understanding the purity of that drug, uh, overdosing on it accidentally because it was too pure, that kind of thing. How can these things be reduced? The most obvious way is drug regulation, regulation of supply, um, having the same labels as you would have on alcohol, on cannabis and other such, and we can look across the world for examples of how that's happening right now. Um, But in lieu of that, uh, what is also obvious is we could test those drugs, and, and that's obviously what has been happening across the world. So I was always really interested in that. Um, I know Michael Brennan, <laughs> you just mentioned him, uh, from Queensland and there's a number of other people, I guess over the last sort of 10 to 15 years that have tried in Australia, some have done it underground, um, uh, to actually test people's drugs and provide the information directly back to the consumer at the time. And the thing is, the technologies have changed over that, that time. And um, I did some volunteering in the early years for Enlighten here in Melbourne, and you know, we were just using reagent test kits. And we, we, you know, that was really interesting, we could engage people. We would come in, we could have a look uh, and, and see what we could find. But that was a really different environment. So the fellowship that's actually funding me at the moment was based on a project that I put forward that was all about trying to understand this thing called new psychoactive substances and novel psychoactive substances. You may otherwise know them as research chemicals or so-called legal highs. Or if you're in Australia, the erroneous term synthetic drugs. So they have many terms. I don't really like this bundle of terms to really mean a lot, but I think what, what we can say is that in the last 10, 15 years, there's been a larger number of different chemicals on the markets. And so there has been this this sort of step change in the number of different chemicals that could potentially be sold as something that is better known to someone. So they've got in their hand what they think is MDMA, or at least they think is MD something, but in fact it's vastly different to that. They have a very different experience, a very problematic experience for them that could result in hospitalisation and death, but it might, in probably many other cases, just results in a really bad time. And that's the sort of thing, why do we have to have this? So, so that's sort of the thing that's been driving um, the work that I've been doing the last few years. Now, what that's looked like from a research perspective is actually uh, a, a very involved literature review, looking at across all the different countries where pill testing or drug checking or some kind of testing of drugs and providing information back to consumers has been going on. I started the review thinking I knew a fair bit about it, and. As what tends to happen when you delve deeply into a topic. You find out that it's much bigger than you thought. And it turns out there's 50 years of, of testing for you know. So we've got, um, using very different terminology, they didn't call it pill testing in the, in the 70s, because they weren't really testing pills, but they were testing LSD, they were testing um, amphetamines, PCP in, in the States, uh, usually at cannabis clinics. Most doctors were having um, people who used drugs coming in, um, getting treatment, and they were, uh, unofficially, and in some cases officially, getting the lab next door to test the drugs. So I found that out. There's heaps of articles from the 70s talking all about that. We just didn't know. You know, we come to this, I guess I came to this thinking it started in the Netherlands in the 90s, but actually, it started way back. So there's actually 50 years that we can draw on it was fascinating to read that stuff because in Canada in the early, I think it was '74, there was this monograph of all of these people in Canada talking about the experiences they had. And there were a few paragraphs in there that were, uh, some would find this difficult, but almost identical to what is happening now, almost identical arguments against from the politicians, almost identical arguments back. And so from one sense you think, Oh, so, you know, things go round and round and here we are again. But on the other hand, it made me feel like that's an argument to have to say, if anyone says this is new and hasn't been tried before, they're wrong. And it's quite simple to show that. So what I've been doing in the last few months, I've just come back from Europe. Uh, I've met with uh, uh, Thiebel Brunt, who uh, runs the Dutch drug monitoring system. And so that particular model is a bit different. They don't actually go to festivals. They actually uh, have these booths uh, scattered around Amsterdam and the rest of the Netherlands, where people would come at uh, different times of the day uh, and talk to a health professionals, submit their drugs for testing. Sometimes those drugs are um, tested on the spot and from the information provided on the spot, but other times they need to wait because it goes back to the lab. So they have that sort of two-tiered system, where the lab is always involved if they can't be quite sure from the get-go what's, what's going on. So people who are prepared might go in on a Tuesday or Wednesday find out what's going on <coughs> like Thursday or Friday and they're not very well prepared for the weekend. So that's what they do in the Netherlands. I also spoke to Maria Ventura from Energy Control. They have a fascinating approach there. Also two-tiered, they've got the laboratory there. You can actually, anybody in Australia can post rocks to the international um, drug testing service and they provide results back as soon as they can so they are trying to do international drug checking Um, but they also go to events and do um, do testing at the events and then I um, had the pleasure of being at Park Life with uh, the Loop, which is run by Fiona Mission that was in Manchester in June Uh, at that time they weren't doing the um, sort of in-person, what they would call front-of-house testing, that they were doing this thing they called back-of-house testing. So um, what was happening was they were getting bags of drugs, literally, (laughs) these sorts of bags, Um, that were seized from police, and the police were collaborating with them, and they were testing everything in those bags. So what they wanted to find was anything unusual, um, one of the substances was pentalone, it's quite possible that it wasn't being sold as pentalone, probably being sold as MDMA, so that was an alert, like there's pentolone here in Parklife, we need to be, be um, uh, alert to that. And another one was very high-dose MDMA pills, which is what they were getting there. So those were the two things that were causing problems on the ground. Also there was high um, ketamine problems as well. So they had a welfare service that's a bit like uh, dance pilots uh, there with uh, harm reduction information, and then they were integrated in with this testing service. So um, in the five hours I was there, both police and people from the welfare service actually came into the tent <coughs> and said, can you prioritise testing this sample? And then that sample went to the front of the line, including the police, because they actually wanted to know if well, I've got this person here. This is not for evidential purposes. If it was, they'd have to do it through the police version of things, but this was just for health purposes. This person is really trash and it's a problem and they're overdosing, we need to know right now what's in this drug. Two minutes later they knew, because we had the machines to test it. So that was a fantastic experience to see how that worked on the ground. And I guess I just want to be able to bring that information back into Australia and be able to talk with some authority about that, having seen it happen. So that's where I'm up to now. There's obviously a lot more to say about what to do next. And I hear that you all talked about it yesterday for an hour. So, um, forward
6: to talking further about that. Moving on, thanks. Um, Good afternoon. Um, Thanks for having me at your conference today. uh, I guess I, um, in some ways come from quite a a different space in this um, reduction discussion, but in many ways very similar space. So, to kind of follow on from Monica's comments about uh, history, sort of, you know, the history of things and drawing on history. Um, interestingly, a little bit of history that a lot of people don't know about uh, where I come from, which is peer-based drug user organisations in Australia, and um, in particular, the injecting drug use space, is that, um which is where those organisations have kind of come from in Australia, largely in response to uh, blood viruses, <coughs> particularly HIV uh, back in the sort of mid to late 80s, is that uh, the link with SSDP, I guess, is that when I first got involved in this as a 20-year-old, I um, was at university myself, at Griffith University in Brisbane, and I was a student activist in the student union and became women's officer and president of that. Student Union, but um, at the time, uh, there were a small number of us who were injecting heroin, uh, mostly, and some other drugs, um, and using other substances as well, non Um And we kind of realised, hearing about HIV from America and stuff, starting to realise how important that issue was gonna be, and we started to form what became the very first drug users organisation in Brisbane, in Queensland, called Quiver, exists to this day, the Queensland Injury and AIDS Association. So it actually did grow out of the student movement in Queensland's case, and so there's a kind of, I guess, nice link of history around that stuff. But I guess, um, you know, what I wanted to sort of reflect on a little bit today, and it does link through from what's been said around, what is harm reduction, really? And, um, yeah, and, and, you know, you've heard different sort of takes on it already from the previous speakers, but. One of the things that I wanted to talk about is that I think too often when we talk about harm reduction we think we're all talking about the same thing and I don't think we can make those assumptions and part of the reason I say that is because as someone who has been doing this for, you know, 25 years or more, um, I, I have frequently heard and increasingly heard, you know, Ash spoke about Australia used to be a leader in this stuff internationally, and we certainly are not now, unfortunately. In fact, if anything, I think we've been sliding backwards for some time on these issues. Not for want of trying, mind you, but I think it's it's happening nevertheless. And part of that, I think, has um, been the disappointing fact that I've heard, you know, some fairly highly regarded harm reductionists, in fact, repeatedly say describe harm reduction as, oh, harm reduction is part of a continuum. It's part of a continuum that includes really harmful drug use, generally referred to as injecting drug use and dependent drug use, on one extreme end of the continuum, and abstinence, no drug use, as the ultimate form of harm reduction. And they're the words that are actually used, the ultimate form of harm reduction being abstinence, on the other end. And people have really bought into that and I think it's really helped undermine genuine, pure harm reduction. Harm reduction in my book is about active drug use and only about active drug use. It is not about abstinence. If there is no drug use, there's no need for harm reduction. That's that's just the fact of the matter. And I think that to suggest that um, it's part of a continuum for me is kind of like feeding into a really moralistic agenda about drugs what it says is, you know, harm reduction really is okay, it's okay, like, because we will eventually get people to stop using, you know, really, that's the road they're on, they're on a road to recovery, (laughs) they are on a road to redemption, don't worry about it, you know, it really is okay, and I think we need to be just really clear, that's a very slippery slope, I reckon, and I think we need to be very clear that harm reduction just is what it is, and as Steph has already said, it is that it's about being non-judgmental, it's being accepting about people's drug use and what they choose to do and put into their bodies and the reasons why they do it and what they do and ensuring that people are as healthy and as well and as happy as they can be while using drugs. That's, that's what harm reduction is about. Um, to suggest that it somehow involves abstinence in some alternate way, I think for me it's really, you know, really problematic. And um, it would be like suggesting. Steph has referred to harm reduction as just. It really is just a very common sense thing. Harm reduction. At the end of the day, you know, we do it in all sorts of other areas of our lives. So, to suggest that abstinence is part kind of drug-related harm reduction would be like saying for driving-related harm reduction. So, such as speed limits and seat belts. That we do that ultimately to get everybody off the road and stop them driving. You know, I mean, that would be the you know, the logical example that would fit with what we're trying to say about use. So I think it's really worth thinking these things through. In some ways what I'm saying, well that's really obvious, but I cannot tell you how many times, how often I have heard it said that harm reduction is part of this continuum and is about stopping using drugs. So I think that we need to be really careful about how we're speaking about it. I've, um, I guess on the issue of that has just uh, been spoken about, yeah, that Monica's just spoken about it around working with police, is another example for me around this, where we, I think we really need to take care. I've all equally heard that people think that, you know, police, uh, what they're doing is harm reduction. Um, now, to my mind, you know, arresting people and criminalising them and incarcerating them is not harm reduction, um, or even potentially doing that. I think that um, police may be supportive of harm reduction, but I think we should be really careful not to talk about them as harm reductionists, or doing harm reduction. They don't do harm reduction. Police, they repeatedly tell us they have a job to do, and they absolutely do have have a job to do, and that is to, is supply reduction, it's law enforcement. That's their primary focus. If they get involved in harm reduction, the problem is, is it's always on a discretionary basis. And the problem with discretion is that it equally can lead to corruption as it can lead to good outcomes. So I think that, you know, we need to be very careful. It's not to say not to work with police, and I need to be really clear about that, that I'm not saying don't work with police. But I think we need to be very, have our eyes wide open when we work in those spaces and about what their agenda is and where the lines are when they might be choosing to be discretionary and working in a in, in, you know, harm reduction way, when they might not be doing that and doing their job um, in the primary sense. So our primary focus is harm reduction and we need to remain really clearly focused on that. Um, I think, you know, I guess I'll, uh, the only other things I might say is just around Uh, I guess the reason that I wanted to sort of make some comments about what harm reduction is and isn't is because, you know, it becomes very important about who's best placed to do that work. And I guess that comes back to some of the comments that others have made, and Steph in particular, about the importance of people who use drugs whoever they are, to be the experts, to be the people who are at the front line and who are being able to say this is what is needed, this is the best way to deliver something, this is the way to design it. They're also so you know they're experts they've got specialist knowledge knowledge that no one else can possibly have and, and you uh, those of you who use drugs will will know um, that already um, but I think that it's also really important for things like trust and credibility in a space that's highly criminalized and highly stigmatized so um, you know there's piles of growing you know evidence around the effectiveness of peer based approaches of Consumer participation, the way that that improves outcomes all round. So that's all there. But I think you know that we need to um, just really be mindful when we're doing this work about what messages we're giving out, about what harm reduction is, what the agenda is, because we start eroding the kind of essence of harm reduction. And um, I think we're on a really super slow. Ultimately, I would say harm reduction is not you know a road to another destination. It is the destination. that is it. It's nothing more than that. and it's also not the end game. Harm reduction is something that we're having to do at the moment because we have an utterly flawed approach to drugs in society. And when we address that, it's not that we won't need any harm reduction then, the harm reduction will probably look quite different at that point and will not need to be the kind of urgent emergency response that it is now because people will be able to get the information they need, get these you know, services they need, the support they need to actually stay well and healthy and use drugs with minimal harm because drugs are not per se harmful, they're just potentially harmful depending on how they're used and the context
0: they are used in harm reduction refers to policies programs and practices that aim primarily to reduce the adverse health social and economic consequences of the use of legal and illegal psychoactive drugs without necessarily reducing drug consumption Harm Reduction benefits people who use drugs, their families, and the community. If you want to know more about Harm Reduction in Victoria, head to hrvic.org.au. Harm Reduction Victoria is a non-profit, user-based, and user-governed organization which aims to educate, inform, support, and advocate for people who use drugs, their friends, families, and broader community.
2: So, we've got
4: a bit of time for some Q&A. Hi, so my question is, um, you are obviously probably aware that the overdose rate um, with opioids and protein, endone, and heroin is, um, I think it's outpaced the road toll at the moment. And I know there's a lot of harm reduction at festivals and stuff, but I'm wondering, like, what can we do to reach people in their homes? And even um, when it comes to hard drugs, you know, people use MDMA and LSD, when they go home and they use benzos and um, protein to come down from those things, um, particularly, and also with amphetamines. So people who are using amphetamines are using quite a lot of sedatives to combat that and then um, having a result in overdose. And I've just noticed there's not a lot in terms of uh, helplines people recall, that they can call poisons information. Uh, if they call things like Directline, they'll probably just put them into like rehab, you know, if you mm-hmm. need to drug and alcohol counselor rather than, you know, giving them some actual harm reduction advice. Um, do you have any um, direction to go with um, reaching people in their homes in, in that kind of sense? Well, I guess, you know, I'll hand it over to Steph, but obviously, harm reduction Victoria is probably the best place
6: to start on that. My call. Some
0: messages via Facebook, so there's that anonymity there. Um, a lot of the issue uh, is to do with the criminalization of drug use and people using them inside the homes. And then also the arbitrary um, way that we schedule some substances and not others, like um, pharmaceuticals. Are Very or have the potential to be very harmful. They're not recognised as a drug as such. um, When we care for people, we take uh, information about what they may or may not be experiencing. So that includes, where appropriate, just clearing what do you think you had or um, what did you intend to (coughs) say. And um, organically, we let that conversation happen. It's not a clinical kind of interrogation. But after a while, sometimes after hours of being in care, um, people do disclose, oh well actually you know, I'm on this prescription drug, or like oh I know, I had, um, I had some valium last night because I had this, and it's like well do you know that's actually lasting for super- about 72 hours in your system, so prompting people to think about what they're putting in their bodies differently. <coughs> and, um, and that extends to food as well. <laughs> so yeah, we, we need to um, be thinking about our consumption Quite differently, um, but that doesn't quite answer your question. Like we yes, don't
6: have naloxone. Naloxone
0: is really the yeah. you know the the best
6: response to something like an opioid overdose. It's, it's specifically in that space. But um, I refer to harm reduction Victoria. They have um, a naloxone um, education program, peer-based program. Charles is in the audience. He can mm-hmm. probably speak speak about that more than I. But, you know, it's basically, for those who don't know, naloxone is an a, a opioid reversal drug. It has no other, you know, effects. It's not a drug that uh, anyone could take, I and mean, if you're not using opioids, it would have, you know, no effect on you. Um, but if you are using opioids, and say you've had more than um, your body can handle, then uh, it can reverse the effects and, and bring someone back from an overdose. So we need to get that into the hands of everyone who's using opioids there and supportive family and friends, people around them so that people can respond. And they then, of course, naloxone's not the only answer. They need to be trained to, one, administer naloxone, but also how to respond to an overdose in the absence of something like naloxone as well. So personally, I'm an advocate for um, overdose prevention to be really comprehensive and people being able to give multiple uh, strategies to respond to an overdose Else. Do you want
3: to add anything oh, to The, the only thing I'd add is the, the lack of capacity in Victoria to do that job. Mm-hmm. We've got one worker that does the whole entire state of Victoria, um, and there's 440 overdose deaths a year. Um, but the last two years it's been the biggest it's ever been since 2001. Mm-hmm. So it is very serious. And, um, you know, a comprehensive approach um, needs capacity. And, I mean, you know, in terms of drug policy spend, Palmer actually gets 2% you know, it's of the entire spend and, you know, something like law enforcement is what's of the accuracy. So well, well, you know. You know. Um, a okay, approach, is I'm not
2: going to wait myself or the Is No. Good. OK, we might come to some other questions. Uh. Um, so
4: as. Talking about harm reduction being talked about as um, something that includes abstinence as part of their approach, how much do you think this is due to the language that we're currently using in our approach as a government? Because I, I think people are often c- communicating, uh, miscommunicating harm reduction with harm minimisation. And so harm minimization under the government approach involves abstinence as one of their key values, whereas harm reduction, as you said, has never involved abstinence whatsoever. And I think a lot of that is to do with the interchanging language that people are using, especially in the media, uh, confusing harm reduction and harm minimization. Completely. um
6: in fact that happens a great deal not just in the media. So I see submissions and other documents that come from, you know, harm reductionists in this very sector interchanging those terminology. I've been around long enough sadly, that they were interchangeable once upon in a time. It, it was actually John Howard's government that coined right. took harm minimisation and turned it into the three pillared supply reduction, demand reduction, harm reduction, as we now know it as government policy. Prior to John Howard's government in the the late uh, 90s, uh, mid to late 90s, Um, and on, Um, that harm minimisation and harm reduction were pretty much interchangeable before that, and now that's kind of been starting to be, that distinction is starting to be picked up internationally a bit more now. So you're right, you know, it's really, if you are talking about harm reduction, you say harm reduction. Mm -hmm. If you use the term harm minimisation, you will be including law enforcement approaches, supply reduction, um, abstinence-based rehabilitation, drug prevention, all of that is into what you're talking about. So,
5: just, just to continue with that, um, some of you may be aware that the National Broke Strategy for the next 10 years has um, now been very quietly released by the government about two yeah. weeks ago, uh, about you know, 18 months late. So, we, yeah. Uh, and there's a lot of backstory to all of that that I'm sort of slightly aware of in terms of the concern among some of my colleagues uh, was that it would actually be a train wreck that the next policy would be horrendous. And it turned out that it wasn't as horrendous as they thought. Having said that, when I looked at it, I found it deeply disturbing in a number of ways. They introduced things like harm prevention, the term harm prevention, which kind of, you know, um, made my mind bend a bit. Uh, they include still the, the three pillars and the idea of harm and the supply reduction, harm reduction, harm reduction. But then in harm reduction, they've got this sort of thing
1: And you've been hearing the voices of Dr Monica Barrett, Annie Madden, uh, Dr. Attila Danko and Steph Genetis from the Dancewise Program and uh, Drug Policy Modelling Program and National Drug and Alcohol Research Centre and uh, AVAL and a variety of organisations from the SSDP conference in 2017, the inaugural conference um, back in August of 2017. This is In Psychedelia on 3CR Community Radio and uh,
2: we've got, we're just about out of time, a couple of events. Uh, Yeah, coming up next Friday is the Reason Party pill-testing party. Uh, Pill-testing saves lives, but politicians won't listen. They are throwing a uh, party at uh, Shifty's in Fitzroy next Friday night, and you can go along for five hours of House and Techno. Uh,
1: Also next week... um on Thursday, between 4 and 6pm, the Yarra Drug and Health Forum are running a uh, election panel, state election panel, uh, with a number of guests from the uh, local uh, political parties. Uh, Mr Richard Wynne, who is contesting uh, the seat of Richmond, and uh, also a concern. It's one of the ones that's on the Greens hit list. Uh, Miss Nina Springle from the greens will be there she's um, upper house uh, western region I think but uh, she's southeast. also the southeast but she's also the um, health spokesperson for the greens in Victoria um, so she's been speaking on drug issues uh, Fiona Patton who's uh, going for the upper seat in a north uh, from the reason party who are having the pill testing party the night after and um, Stephen Jolly who's also going for an upper house seat in the in a northern uh, region. There is also one to be confirmed, and I believe it's a Liberal member, um, but we're not sure if we will see them there yet. Hopefully so, because it is. Um, it, last time, that was actually um, good to have uh, him in the room. I think he's retiring this election. I can't remember his name off <laughs> the top of my head, but he's retiring. <laughs> that
2: that that makes sense. And it is uh, election season, so we encourage you to get involved and you know go along to any political parties that you align with and uh help out
1: and we're just about out of time Querying there uh up next uh, please tune in next week check out the podcast 3cr.org.au follow the links to the encyclopedia program page and we'll see you next week for two
0: this is Psychedelia. comments complaints or contributions are welcome jump on the 3cr website 3cr.org.au and head to the Enpsychedelia program page. Get in contact with us on Facebook or Twitter or send us an email. Enpsychedelia does not condone or condemn people who use drugs for their choices. Our aim is to present the diverse intersections of psychoactive drugs and society. If you are concerned about your own drug use or a friend's drug use, Direct Line provides a free and confidential counselling service 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Call 1 800 888 236. Enpsychedelia will be back on 3CR from 2 pm next Sunday. This has been a 3CR podcast. You can hear in Psychedelia live every Sunday from 2pm. Head to 3cr.org.au for more.